Welcome. This is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics at the City College and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and this is Exploration. Every week in Exploration, we discuss the fascinating world of science and its impact on society. And today, leading off, we're going to say a few things about the coronavirus, the good news and the bad news. The good news is that some scientists believe that, get this, we are approaching herd immunity. In other words, perhaps, just perhaps, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Already, Broadway is coming back here in New York. Restaurants are hiring again. In fact, there's even a shortage of workers to fill all the vacancies. But there's still bad news. The virus is still mutating, which means that, well, booster shots, we may have them forever. Just like the flu virus, we have to have new versions of the flu vaccine every season, and perhaps the same thing will happen for the coronavirus. And then we'll say a few things about outer space. William Shatner, the star of Star Trek, boldly went where no Hollywood actor has ever gone before. Straight up, 66 miles to the edge of space. He experienced three minutes of weightlessness, which took his breath away. The voyage lasted 11 minutes in total. And of course, let's face it, it was not a scientific mission. However, it was a mission that would open up the gateways to what is called space tourism. Yes, it was a race of billionaires. Richard Branson of Virgin Galactic versus Jeff Bezos of Blue Origin versus Elon Musk of SpaceX. Yes, there are a lot of egos involved in this race. However, Prince William of the United Kingdom has something to say about this. He said in, in so many words that the best minds on this planet should instead have focused on real problems, supposedly global warming, rather than stroking the egos of these billionaires. I paraphrase his words. And perhaps a lot of people felt that way, but we'll say a few things about the pros and cons of space tourism and the much larger picture of the space economy. What does it mean when a good chunk of the world economy is in outer space? And that mission of the Blue Origin rocket was almost delayed because there was an explosion on the sun. That's right, the sun is having a temper tantrum now, blew off a tremendous corona mass discharge the previous Saturday before the launch, and this gigantic mass of ions and plasma hit the Earth. Luckily, the bulk of it missed the Earth, we dodged a bullet, but it created a spectacular light show in North Dakota. A light show, the Aurora Borealis, normally seen in Alaska and Iceland, was actually seen as far south as North Dakota. So what does it mean if we have to give not just the weather report, but the space weather report for astronauts, for space tourists, and for people who may want to go to places like Mars? And what would happen in a worst-case scenario? The worst-case scenario is the Kenrington event of 1859. Property damage, $2 trillion. If a planetary blackout were to take place if a gigantic solar flare from the sun has a direct hit on the planet Earth.
Also, scientists have often wondered, how will the Earth end? Will the Earth end in fire or ice? Well, we think we know the answer. On a scale of thousands of years, civilization may end in ice with the coming of an ice age. However, on a scale of tens of thousands of years, on a scale of half a billion years, on a scale of five billion years, we're talking about the Earth ending its life in fire. And the question is, how will that take place? Well, scientists have now seen a solar system in outer space where exactly that scenario played out. How will the Earth die? We think we know the answer. Well, let's just jump right into some of the top stories of the past week. The good news, if you could call it, the good news is that some epidemiologists say that we are approaching herd immunity. Herd immunity is roughly when 70% or so of the population has either been vaccinated or exposed to the virus. At that point, the virus cannot jump to the next victim very easily. At that point, the virus may go into extinction. However, let's take a look at the 1918 flu virus. Or for that matter, think of all the other pandemics we've had in the past. Back then, we didn't have any vaccinations at all. So where did the deadly virus go? Well, it disappeared. But if it disappeared, where did it disappear? We think they basically mutated. So in other words, many of the deadly viruses of the past are still around, but in relatively harmless mutated form because they ran out of victims to kill. If you kill all the victims, then you as a virus cannot survive yourself. And so you want to weaken yourself so you can survive and yet still infect a population. Well, some countries are now approaching 70% vaccination. And it means that maybe, just maybe, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. Not in the United States, however. There are too many holdouts here in this country. But in other countries, we see restaurants beginning to open up, theaters beginning to open up. We begin to see that, well, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. In fact, currently, there is even a shortage, a shortage of workers, especially in the service and restaurant industries, where there are jobs just begging to be filled. Well, that's the good news. The bad news is, well, let's face it, the virus is still mutating. There are other versions of the Delta that are being watched very carefully. And what does that mean? That probably means that we'll probably have a booster shot every year, indefinitely, just like we have a flu shot, except, of course, this virus can definitely kill you. So the hope is that we'll be able to control each new generation of the virus as it mutates. And so the virus becomes very much like the flu virus. That is, it's still around, but we can control it. But there is some bad news now. Many people got the Pfizer vaccine, which is 95% effective against the virus, but only for the first two months. This was kind of a shock. By analyzing the effectiveness of the vaccine, most of its effectiveness against infection dropped after just two months. However, it was still effective against hospitalizations and death, but it was not so effective against simply coming down with an infection. And that's the reason why the recommendation is, if you've been vaccinated six months prior, 
then perhaps it's time to get a booster shot. Also news from outer space. William Shatner, of course, was famous for saying that we should boldly go where no one has gone before. Now people are saying we should boldly go where no Hollywood movie star has ever gone before. Yes, William Shatner, 90 years of age, became the oldest person to soar into the very edge of outer space, 66 miles straight up. The Blue Origin rocket, it created a voyage of 11 minutes straight up, straight down, with three minutes of weightlessness, and with a team of cameras waiting to interview William Shatner afterwards. So, of course, it was not really a mission of science, except, of course, to track his body signs to see how an individual of age 90 can endure the rigors of space travel. However, other people saw it differently. Some people saw it as a battle of the egos of billionaires. We now have three, count them, three billionaires with their own space program. We have Jeff Bezos of Blue Origin, which took William Shatner to the edge of space. We also have Richard Branson of Virgin Galactic. And then we have Elon Musk with his own company, SpaceX, and his own team of tourists to go into outer space. Well, Prince William of England has something to say about this, and he thought, huh, the best minds should be working on problems of the planet Earth, not necessarily planets out there in outer space. Well, I have my own personal point of view. And first of all, let's face it, space tourism even though we got a lot of publicity, is only a tiny, tiny speck on the dot of the map of what's happening with space science and the space economy. Our economy, believe it or not, is headed for outer space. GPS, weather satellites, the internet, TV, radio, all the things that we associate with the economy is done in outer space. In fact, you may be listening to my voice, compliments of a satellite that beams signals into outer space. So let's face it, the left hand and the right hand should not be pitted against each other. We need both working in concert. And then the next question is, well, what about space tourism? How does it fit into the larger economy? Well, look at it this way. After World War II, with all the devastation surrounding us, Rich people began to see the airplane not as a weapon of war dropping bombs, but as a way to go to vacation sites. And so all of a sudden, luxury liners began to sprout. That, of course, created a backlash. People thought, what? People are still hungry. And here we have the rich creating a jet set using these weapons of war in order to have a leisurely vacation in the Bahamas or whatever. Well, what happened? What happened is that prices began to drop. And with the dropping of the price, air transportation became not just a privilege of the wealthy, but a right for the average person who could pay for a ticket. So we see a lesson here. And that is that technology initially is clumsy, is awkward, and you have to pay off the people who invest in it to begin with. So it's expensive. That's the way it's always been. Somebody has to pay for all the trials and tribulation and tears that went into creating the thing. 
but with mass production, with better science and technology, but with better financing, the costs begin to drop like a rock to the point that now mom and dad can get on a jetliner and whiz into the sky. So the point is that space tourism gets a lot of publicity, but it's only a tiny, tiny dot compared to the map of what we have with space tourism. Now, let me tell you a little story. I remember when Lyndon Baines Johnson was president of the United States and the first weather satellite went into orbit, the Tyros weather satellite. Well, LBJ got a lot of flack. People said, what? A weather satellite? If you want to know the weather, just stick your finger in your mouth and put it in the wind. That's all you need to know. Well, I still remember LBJ was going to do a TV press conference. And the Tyrus satellite, for the first time in world history, picked up the signals of a giant hurricane, a hurricane headed toward Texas. And then LBJ came on the air that night and said, folks, today the space program has paid for itself by giving us an early warning of the coming of a giant hurricane. Actually, I think that's slightly wrong. You see, the space program did not simply pay for itself. It more than paid for itself. Think of all the lives that be, are saved because we can track these monster storms. Think of all the, all the properties that can be saved, people's livelihood uh, being saved because we have advanced warning coming from weather satellites. So you see, things that today we take for granted, like weather satellites, GPS, the internet, we take it for granted. But look, that has stimulated economic growth that has created a tremendous amount of progress. So instead of pitting your left hand against your right hand, I say we need both. Your left hand and your right hand should work together. That is space science and science on the planet Earth. They can work together. For example, take a look at Elon Musk. He's the genius behind SpaceX. He practically single-handedly revitalized the space industry and in the process spurred on the democratization of outer space. Not only that, he's also the driving force of Tesla Motors, which in turn uh, fills up an entire chapter when somebody writes the history of global warming. So in other words, why not do both? Why pit one against the other? Now, sure, these billionaires get a lot of publicity. Sure, they flaunt their money. Sure, it's an ego trip. Yeah, 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 I get that. But look at the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that look at the railroads, look at the airline industry. They both started out hauling cargo and troops and weapons of war. That's how these things got started. But then rich people came in and made luxury liners out of it causing a certain amount of resentment. But then we enter stage three. And at stage three, prices drop. All of a sudden, mom and dad can get on an airplane. And in the future, mom and dad may soar into outer space. In fact, I personally believe that our descendants, I don't know when, but our descendants may honeymoon on the moon one day. Well, the Saturday before that launch with William Shatner, there was a weather report that was quite frightening. Not an ordinary weather report, a space weather report. You see, the Saturday before the launch, 
there was an explosion on the sun, tracked by astronomers. They saw a gigantic corona mass discharge blasting off the surface of the sun, headed for, you guessed it, the planet Earth. Scientists tracked it as it soared 93 million miles from the sun to the Earth, predicting a direct hit. Now, it would not be the maximum force solar flare, but it would be pretty powerful. Powerful enough to perhaps damage our satellites, maybe a few power supplies, and cause the aurora borealis. Well, thank goodness we dodged the bullet. It was not a direct hit, but yeah, we got some of it. It hit North Dakota. And believe it or not, the people of North Dakota looked up in the sky and saw this beautiful green glow emanating from the horizon. It was the aurora borealis, the northern lights. That is, all these charged particles, these ions, blasting off the surface of the sun, traveling 93 million miles, hitting the atmosphere of the Earth, causing more ions to form, causing the atmosphere to glow, and the people of North Dakota got a light show, a tremendous light show, as they saw, looking up, the aurora borealis. <clears throat> now, fortunately, we dodged the bullet, but one day we won't. It's only a matter of time. You see, these corona mass discharges come out of sunspots. Sunspots are like the rifle of a bullet. That is, they spew out huge balls of plasma, highly radioactive plasma, into the air. For the most part, they miss the Earth. You see, the Earth is very tiny compared to the huge size of the sun. So even if the sun blasts off these many corona mass discharges, for the most part, they miss the Earth. And even if they hit the Earth once in a while, who cares? Because throughout human history, there was no electricity to speak of. You see, only in the last 100 or 50 years or so have we developed an electrical infrastructure that is vulnerable to a corona mass discharge or giant solar flare. So in other words, for thousands of years, we've been blissfully unaware of the fact that we've been having direct hits from the sun, but there was nothing to worry about because we didn't have the internet, we didn't have GPS, we didn't have radio, television, we didn't have power plants, none of that, just 150 years ago. Well, now we do. We physicists went to Congress and said that if another big one, like the one of 1859, the so-called Carrington event, if that mother of all solar flares hits the Earth, property damage would be $2 trillion. We'd be helpless. We're a sitting duck to a gigantic solar flare. And it would cause a planetary blackout. Think about that. A blackout not just in one city, so a neighboring city can come and repair the damaged power lines. No, a planetary blackout. There would be food riots because power systems would go out. Food would rot in refrigerators that don't work anymore. Nobody's going to come to the rescue. Food riots could erupt. Also, looting. People will realize that there's no burglar alarms anymore, and the police, they're paralyzed too. And so looting and chaos, that would spread. So in other words, we're talking about a nightmare if we were to have another Carrington event. So we went to Congress, we physicists, and asked Congress for millions of dollars 
to reinforce satellites, create shielding for power plants. Wouldn't take much to do that. And what did we get? We got the giggle factor. Congress basically giggled at us and said, what? The sun? The sun wrecking havoc on the earth? You got to be kidding. Just go outside and see how mild the sun is. Well, astronomers track this. And we know that one day, the big one will hit. When? We don't know, but it's inevitable. It's the law of averages. Also, scientists have often wondered, how will the Earth die? In fire or ice? Well, some people thought maybe it would be ice, like Ragnarok, the great freeze of the Norse mythology. And other people say, well, no, it's not going to be ice, like an ice age. It's going to be fire. It's going to be fire and brimstone. Well, we physicists know the answer. It's going to be fire. On a scale of five billion years, the sun will expand to become a red giant, and it will basically eat up Mercury, Venus. We're going to be incinerated inside the atmosphere of a giant red giant star. That's how our sun will die, taking us with it. But then the question is, what happens if we have rocket ships? I mean, five billion years is an awful long time. What happens if we have rocket ships and go to Jupiter and Saturn? Well, what happened? Well, just by chance, astronomers were looking at extrasolar planets in the galaxy, and they came across an unusual one. Scientists found in outer space a white dwarf star, which is the remnant of a gigantic star that went into a red giant phase and then collapsed. It's tiny. A red white dwarf star is about the size of the Earth. That's right, about the size of the Earth, very, very densely packed. And it is the remnant, the remnant of what happens when the mother sun becomes a red giant and then collapses. Now, the key thing is, what happened to the planets? What happened to the planets when the mother star became a giant, hot, red star and then collapsed into a white dwarf? What is left? Well, scientists analyzed that solar system very carefully, and they were relieved to find that a Jupiter planet, Jupiter-sized planet, was still orbiting around the white dwarf. That's a first. We've never seen that before. Think about it for a moment. The white dwarf star is the size of the Earth, tiny, tiny, with the mass of the sun. A teaspoon, a teaspoon of white dwarf material is so dense, so heavy, that it would outweigh a mountaintop on the planet Earth. Just a teaspoon of white dwarf material. So it has a tremendous gravitational field. The gravitational field, in fact, of a star, even though it is the size of the planet Earth. And surrounding it, they found a Jupiter-sized planet. So in some sense, we now know our future. That is, on a scale of 5 billion years, we think our sun will expand, eat up Mercury, Venus, the Earth will be incinerated in the atmosphere of this gigantic star, the red giant star will then collapse into a tiny, tiny white dwarf, which is about the size of New York City, but it weighs as much as the sun. Therefore, its gravity is strong enough to whip Jupiter and Saturn around itself. And what do they find? They found a planet that is the size of Jupiter 
surrounding this white dwarf star. So we now know more or less the future of the solar system. The Earth will die in fire, but by then we'll have rocket ships to take us perhaps to the moons of Jupiter, and the moons of Jupiter have liquid oceans under the ice cover. Europa and Enceladus, the moon of Saturn, are likely targets for any civilization that wants to flee the fact that the sun, its sun, has become a red giant star. And now let me say something else. Late at night, when you look at the sky, you see the Milky Way galaxy, this gigantic swath of light. How will the galaxy die? Well, we think we now know the answer to that, too. We are on a collision course with another galaxy, Andromeda. The Andromeda galaxy is bigger than our galaxy, and so our galaxy is going to be pretty much overwhelmed by its larger neighbor. In fact, computer simulations show that as the Andromeda galaxy comes close to our galaxy, it will rip, rip the arms of the Milky Way galaxy apart. Then the two black holes at the center of Andromeda and the Milky Way will undergo a death dance. A death dance as they rotate around each other and eventually form a giant red giant star. And then the last question is, how will the universe die? Well, the universe, we think, will eventually die as a cold, cold mass of gas, dark matter, dark energy, no stars igniting at all, just infinite blackness. And is that the fate of everything there is? I mean, why bother to wake up in the morning tomorrow knowing that it's all for nothing? All the great trials and tribulations of humanity, all the great noble achievements of the human race, all for nothing. Those are the words of a great mathematician, Bertrand Russell, who said that it's all for nothing because according to the laws of physics, it's all going to end. Well, the laws of physics may change. We think that we cannot prove that a black hole might be, under certain circumstances, a gateway. A gateway, perhaps, to another universe. It was Einstein himself in 1935 who took two black holes, stuck them back to back to create a funnel. A funnel that connected one plane with a neighboring plane, a parallel universe. So in other words, perhaps trillions upon trillions of years from now, when the universe becomes a cold mass of dead subatomic particles, whatever is left of humanity will find such a gigantic gateway, a wormhole to another universe, and then enter it and flee to a neighboring universe where it's a lot warmer, and then we can proceed to mess up that universe as well. Great, we've messed up this universe and now we have another fertile universe to mess up as well. Well, of course, a lot of this is speculation. However, it's speculation based on the known laws of physics. Everything must die, either in fire or ice. And now we physicists think we're piecing it all together, except the last chapter is a question mark. Who knows how the universe will eventually die? This is just a theory a theory that pushes the very boundaries of what is known. And if you want to find out more about this, get a copy of my latest New York Times bestseller, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. 
Everything including not just the birth of the universe, but the death of the universe as well. afraid that's it for the first part of exploration. Stay tuned for the second part of exploration when we talk about the birth of the universe itself. What do we know about creation? Genesis, the beginning of everything. Stay tuned for the second half of exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku, Professor of Theoretical Physics, and this is the second half of Exploration. First of all, if you want to know more about Exploration, go to my website, mkaku.org, m-k-a-k-u.org. We have now about 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. My latest New York Times bestseller is called The God Equation. The quest for a theory of everything. Is it possible that one day we'll find an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that will allow us, in the words of Albert Einstein, allow us to, quote, read the mind of God? Well, that's the end game for all of physics, some people think. And find out more by getting a copy of my latest book, The God Equation, The Quest for a Theory of Everything. Well, where we last left off, we were talking about how the universe might die. But first, let's discuss how the universe was created. With us today is a BBC commentator, Simon Singh, author of a new book called The Big Bang. And we're going to talk about what is known about the creation of the universe, especially a titanic battle between two theories, George Gamow, a Russian physicist proposing an explosion that created the universe, and Cambridge physicist Fred Hoyle, who believed, no, the universe is in a steady state, rather than having this gigantic explosion at the beginning of time. Well, once again, our special guest is Simon Singh, commentator with BBC Television, talking about the origin of the universe. The first question for you, Dr. Singh, is how did you first get interested in science, and in particular, physics? Gosh, I I think it's, I mean, for me, it's strange to to think about that question because it's so obvious to me that science is interesting. You you know, questions about what is stuff made of, where did life come from, um, where did the universe come from? Uh, I mean, these are, to me, such fascinating questions that, you know, as far back as I can remember... um, they are what inspired me. And also, I was kind of good at science. So when you're good at something and you're interested in something, then, then you tend to pursue it more and more and more. So uh, as a kid through, through, through uh, high school and into university, into grad school, I, I always sort of knew that, that physics is, is what I was interested in. 
Okay, and specifically, why did you write a book about Fermat's Last Theorem, a book that comes out of, of course, the arcane world of mathematics, and now a book about the Big Bang? Well, I suppose I, when, I, when I was finishing my PhD, uh, um, and that was in particle physics, I, I looked around me, and I, I could just see people who were that much quicker than me, that much smarter than me, and they were going to be the people who would make the great breakthroughs. And, and you know, I, I sort of felt I'd reached my you know, intellectual limit, so to speak. And I thought, well, what else do I like doing? I still love physics. I still love science. How can I stay in touch with science? Um, and I always enjoyed writing about science and, and communicating it. So I then made the jump from doing science to uh, writing about science and making TV shows about science. And I worked for the BBC for about five or six years. Uh, I made a documentary about the, the proof of Fermat's last theorem, uh, one of the most notorious problems in mathematics, and, and a, a problem with a wonderful history to it. So having made the documentary for the BBC, and it also aired on Nova, I then wrote a book about it, and, um, and then I made the transition from, from scientist to uh, TV producer to writer, and, and now I, I do a bit of writing, production, broadcasting, anything as long as it's related to science, and, and the Big Bang is sort of my latest um, sort of obsession, because it just struck me that for thousands of years we wondered where the universe came from. And now we actually have a theory, and it, it, it's compelling, it's reasonable, it's rational, it's beautiful. And I, I just wanted to celebrate that theory and tell people what it is and, and why we believe in it. Okay, well, let's talk about the ancient fascination with creation. Every religion, every culture has some kind of origin myth. So could you explain to us uh, some of the more intriguing um, ideas that mythologists uh, and mystics uh, toyed with over over the millennia. Gosh, I, I, I must admit there are, there are so many of them that you know you go to the wastes of Iceland or, or to the, the most dense jungles of Africa. Um, every society has its own myth, and um, r rather than picking on, on one or two of them, maybe what I'll do is is I, the general overview. What they all have in common is that they all involve some kind of supernatural being, a giant or a god or, or something. And they all differ, uh, and yet they reflect their local environment. So the animals of the jungle might have been responsible for instigating the universe or, or some icy chasm if you were up in, in, in Iceland. Um, so they're, they're all different. Um, they all are pretty much sacred. So if you're from Iceland, you know, 2,000 years ago, you could not attack the Icelandic creation myth. And, and so you have supernatural beings, uh, differences, and yet an inability to question or criticize. And so myths of these sort are really the antithesis of science, because in science we say, well, no supernatural beings allowed. If you're going to explain something in science, you must have a natural explanation for a natural phenomenon. Two, yeah, go ahead and, and, and criticize it. You know, if you don't like my theory, attack it. And, and we'll judge whose theory is best according to the evidence. So we can contrast and compare. And, and in the end, hopefully, as a scientific community, we agree which theory is the best. So science isn't always perfect. It's not always right. But it's our best hope of getting to the truth because of this openness, because of this ability to criticize and to, to compare and to fall back on, on observation and experiment and measurement as the arbiter of truth. Okay, well, let's now go back to the beginnings of modern science. 
which traces its origin back to Galileo and Kepler and Isaac Newton, and explain to us how the early astronomers, uh, using this young, uh, this young discipline called science, how they viewed cosmology. Well, I think I think what they were interested in really was sort of quite local phenomena. Um, so, so uh, you know, does the Earth go around the sun, or does the sun go around the Earth? And and and, and uh, Galileo went on to discover the the, the, the moons of, of of Jupiter and, and the sunspots and the sun. And um, so, to some extent, these people were were interested in, in relatively local events. And um, they were also men of, of great faith. So Galileo, although he fought against the church, was a devout Catholic. Uh, but he said, look, if you want to understand the universe, you have to use science. Uh, the Bible tells us how to go to heaven, but it doesn't tell us how the heavens go. Um, God gave us a brain, and he gave us a brain to understand his universe. So they managed to sort of uh, marry their religion with their science. Um, in the case of Newton, um, I think he probably believed in some kind of creation that the universe had been created, presumably by God, and that that universe, because it was created by God, should be perfect and eternal. So, so the universe was here, and because he'd created something that was perfect, it wouldn't really change. It would just sit here for, 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 for billions of years, billions and billions and billions of years, forever and ever and ever. Amen. I, I think that's really, that was Newton's view. Okay, now a clergyman by the name of Bentley wrote uh, Newton a famous letter saying that if gravity is attractive, and of course Newton's theory of gravity is attractive, and if the universe were finite and consisted of uh, finite stars just sitting there, because gravity is attractive, eventually the whole system would collapse and the whole universe would essentially dissolve. Now, that, of course, was fatal to the young theory of Isaac Newton. Uh, we do not see a collapsing universe. Uh, the universe seems to be relatively stable. So what was Newton's reaction to the idea that any theory which is attractive is necessarily unstable? Yeah, I, th I think this must have been very disconcerting for him because he wanted an everlasting, unchanging universe. And um, I think that there are two ways out of this. Um, Perhaps one is that the universe is sort of perfectly balanced. Um, okay, I, I might be being pulled in one direction by one star over, over, over the west, but there's a star over to the east that's pulling me in the other direction. So everything is incredibly finely balanced. But th this has problems in that the slightest perturbation, the, the turning of a page in a book, um, could suddenly trigger a whole load of instabilities, which ultimately would lead to the collapse of the universe. So I think then Newton sort of invoked God and said, well, actually, maybe what happens is every so often God, you know, if, if all the stars are falling in on each other, every so often he puts them back in their place, does a little bit of uh, uh, janitor work in, in kind of making sure that everything's neat and tidy and, and in the right place. Um, but I think even to him this must have been unsatisfactory. It, it, as you say, the theory of gravity, it's attractive. It should cause the universe to collapse. Um, how can you avoid the universe collapsing? Was, was, was Newton's challenge. Okay, so Newton had to invoke divine intervention to prevent this house of cards from collapsing because of the slightest tiny perturbation. But now comes uh, Einstein, uh, of course, 250 years later. He also has a theory of gravity, given a different picture of curved space. But gravity is attractive, even in Einstein's theory. And if you have a finite collection of stars and gravity is mutually attractive, it will collapse. 
And so uh, didn't Einstein's theory also have the same paradox of Bentley? Yeah, it, I mean, it's the same gravity. Um, it's it expressed differently in terms of the mathematics and the underlying foundation of, of general relativity is different from Newtonian uh, gravity. Uh, but still, Einstein's theory of gravity is of an attractive force. An attractive force will cause the universe to collapse. Uh, and, and so this was a, a problem for Einstein, too. The way he got out of it was by introducing uh, uh, an extra element into his equation of gravity, uh, what's called the gravitational, uh, 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 a cosmological constant. And the role of the cosmological constant is to create a sort of repulsive force. And, and, and therefore, maybe there was this way that the, the universe could balance itself so that gravity becomes more complicated uh, and, and can potentially uh, keep the universe in equilibrium. It was, a, again, I, I think even Einstein must have been uncomfortable with this because adding in fudge factors like this uh, are not really what you want to do in physics. And yet Einstein felt it was essential in order to keep the harmony and balance of this eternal universe. Okay, well, we'll, re we'll return to the cosmologic constant later, which is now figures very prominently in our discussion of the fate of the universe. Uh, but let's also talk about yet another paradox when you talk about the universe. And this is Olbrich's paradox, which very simply says that if the universe is uniform and eternal and has an infinite number of stars, then everywhere you look, you see an infinite number of stars, and therefore your eyes should melt. The universe should be on fire. The sky should be white rather than black. And so then the question is, why is the night sky black when it should be white with an infinite number of stars? So could you explain Olbrich's paradox and how astronomers tried to grapple with that over centuries? Yes, I, I think it, it was a real problem. Uh, as you said, it's a, it's a nice piece of mathematics. You can sort of just look at shells of the universe, and every shell contains a finite number of stars, and you build up the shells, it turns out that wherever you look, you should see a star. And therefore, the night sky, as you say, instead of being pretty much black, would be pretty much brilliant white, infinitely bright. Uh, and, and, and I think astronomers were, were fundamentally stumped by this. I think you can come up with all sorts of ad hoc excuses. You know, maybe there's dust in the universe that absorbs the light. Well, then the dust should re-emit the light. Um, can't get rid of it. Um, you know, pe people tried to come up with all sorts of excuses, but none of them were really very satisfactory. If the universe is eternal and pretty much unchanging, there's no real way out of, out of Olber's paradox, I think. So it was Edgar Allan Poe, according to historians who've gone through the record, it was Edgar Allan Poe, the famous American mystery writer, who practically on his deathbed uh, wrote the solution to Olber's paradox. So maybe the universe had a beginning. Maybe there's a cutoff with regards to the amount of light that hits your eyeball when you look in out of space. Well, that, uh, that, could that, you elaborate? That's, yeah, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I didn't realize that uh, Edgar Allan Poe had, had sort of come up with this first. But, but as you say, the, the, the way we now get out of Olber's paradox is with the Big Bang Theory. The Big Bang Theory says the universe hasn't been here forever. It's only been here for a finite time. We now know that's roughly 14 billion years. Um, the best guess we have is 13.7 billion years. Um, if the universe has only been here for a finite amount of time, then light can have reached us only from a finite volume of the universe. So out there, 
way, way, way beyond this kind of uh, horizon. There may be tons and tons of light, but none of it's reached us yet because it's too far away. So we effectively live in a sort of a finite volume of, of, of observation, and therefore, therefore we only see a finite amount of light. Uh, and, and I think that's how we get out of, out of, out of Olber's paradox today. In other words, you have to abandon that, the idea of an eternal, infinite universe and embrace the idea of a, 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 a universe with a finite age. It was actually created a finite time ago. So it's rather amazing that the reason why the night sky is black is because there is a cutoff, as, as Edgar Allan Poe uh, mentioned in his book. Uh, there's a cutoff. Light hasn't had time to reach us because there was a, a beginning. Now, the Hubble Space Telescope has actually given us photographs of the most distant stars in the universe. And sure enough, um, when you go past the most distant stars, there is blackness. There is essentially the Big Bang. The Big Bang is essentially staring at you in the face. And, of course, the Big Bang you cannot see because it's in the microwave region. But that's the reason why the night sky is black, because you're literally staring at the Big Bang. Yeah, it's very interesting that if, if we go back 100 years, uh, you know, Einstein was sort of uh, his 100th anniversary of his Annus Mirabilis. If we go back to 1905, pretty much the whole scientific establishment thinks that the universe has been here forever. They don't believe in the Big Bang. And yet, in a way, the clue was there. Olber's paradox is what should have been telling them that they have to really move towards a Big Bang model. And uh, Edgar Allan Poe, that, that's interesting to know that he sort of first posited this. Um, one of the first people to sort of posit it in, in a more mathematical framework was the Belgian cosmologist Georges Lemaitre in around 1927. And he sat down and wrote down the equations and said, look, logically, it is possible. Uh, if, we, if we look at Einstein's theory of gravitation, everything is consistent with the idea of a, of a Big Bang universe. He didn't talk about a Big Bang. He used phrases like a day without a yesterday. But essentially, you know, he, was, he was solving Olber's paradox by saying uh, the universe started with a Big Bang. Still nobody believed him, though. Still the scientific establishment wanted to hold on to its notion of an eternal universe. Like every establishment, uh, people are sort of comfortable with what they know, and they're reluctant to embrace new ideas especially as there wasn't really much observational evidence to back up Lemaitre's idea. So the Big Bang in the mid-1920s was very much a, 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 a hypothesis. Okay, now let's go to the late 1920s, where we have Edwin Hubble, who is perhaps the greatest astronomer of the last century, where we have the discovery of the expanding universe from Mount Wilson Observatory in California. So could you elaborate now, what did Edwin Hubble find? Well, Hubble um, looked up into the, into the night sky and studied galaxies and, and was measuring what we call redshift. Um, uh, if, you, uh, if you listen to a car go by at high speed, it makes that classic noise, uh, it goes from a high pitch to a low pitch. As it approaches, the, the sound waves are sort of compressed. As it leaves, the sound waves are drawn apart. Now, if a galaxy is approaching, it doesn't make a sound, but the light waves are sort of compressed. Uh, it, the physics is a bit more complicated than this, but, but essentially, if a galaxy is coming towards you, it should look a little bit blue. If it's moving away from you, it should look a little bit red. Now, whenever Hubble looked at a distant galaxy, it was always red. It was always red-shifted, always redder than it should have been. So if all the galaxies in the universe, all the distant galaxies, if they're all red-shifted, 
they're all moving away. If they're all moving away, well, that's exactly what you would expect if the universe started with a big bang. Hot, dense, compact object explodes outwards. The debris forms galaxies. The galaxies should still be flying apart. And that's exactly what Hubble was seeing. So this is sort of 1929 to 1931 when this data sort of started rolling in. It was the first real evidence to, to, to sort of indicate that maybe Lemaitre was right. Still, the scientific establishment didn't embrace the Big Bang Theory. Um, it's like building a case in a court of law. Um, you don't convict somebody on maybe just one piece of evidence. If the Big Bang is guilty of creating the universe, we want more than just one piece of evidence. So Lemaitre and the other supporters of the Big Bang Theory had to continue uh, their battle to, to find proof of the Big Bang. Hubble's data, you're absolutely right, was, was pivotal in, in beginning to swing the debate in their favor. Okay, now let's go to the 1950s uh, when a British astronomer and his colleagues, uh, led by Fred Hoyle, begin to challenge the Big Bang Theory. And apparently in a BBC uh, debate with George Gamow, uh, Fred Hoyle coins the word uh, Big Bang as a as a rather derisive comment. Uh, after all, it wasn't very big, and there was no bang. <laughs> but tell us a little bit about the debate between Fred Hoyle and George Gamow. Well, yeah, I think Gamow was, was a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, uh, whereas Hoyle was very skeptical. And I've, I've heard this BBC radio piece of archive, and it, it, it's lovely to hear Fred Hoyle in his very kind of Yorkshire, abrupt, down-to-earth voice saying, you know, he says... Uh, you know, this Big Bang theory to me seems unreasonable. Uh, and he, he used the phrase as an insult, Big Bang, just kind of a throwaway comment. But the name stuck. And um, critics liked it, the fans liked it, and we've, we've sort of used it ever since. But the reason that, that, that Hoyle found Big Bang to be unreasonable was he just found it, I think, philosophically unpalatable to have, eternity, uh, to, to have a creation. Um, he didn't like the idea of, 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 of a moment of creation. To me, it sort of smacked, to him, it sort of smacked of a god. Um, but at the, on the other hand, he had to accept that the universe was expanding. The universe was getting bigger. So how do you marry those two things? The universe that is changing, but on the other hand, Hoyle wanted it to last forever and to have been here forever. And his way to sort of marry those two ideas was to say, okay, the galaxies move apart because the universe is expanding. But then new matter is created in the gaps. And those new, that new matter evolves into galaxies. And then that galaxy moves away, and then a new galaxy is born. And so that way, the overall density of galaxies in the universe remains the same. If you look way into the future, the overall galaxies remain equally dense. If you look way into the past, the number of galaxies per certain volume remains the same. And this was called the steady-state theory of the universe. Um, my understanding was that I met Thomas Gold, who, who worked with Fred Hoyle on this, and uh, they, he told me a story that they went to see a film in uh, 1945. And the film is about a young man who wakes up one morning. He's, he's had been having a huge dream, a very vivid dream. In the middle of the dream, he suddenly wakes up. He gets washed. He gets dressed. He jumps into his car. He drives into the countryside. His car breaks down goes into a house um, looking for help. Um, things go horribly wrong. It's a, it's a sort of slightly drawn-out story, but things go horribly wrong, and eventually the people in the house 
grab the young man and strangle him. They, they throttle him. And just as they're about to strangle him to death, he wakes up. He's been having a dream. He gets washed. He gets dressed. He jumps into his car. He drives into the countryside. His car breaks down. He goes into a house. He looks for help. And so on and so on. So here's a film that has a sort of cyclic or continual um, version. The film could go on forever and ever and ever. It sort of develops, but it sort of stays the same. And it was seeing that film that inspired Fred Hoyle and his colleagues to develop their steady-state view of the universe, a universe that clearly changes because it expands, but one that sort of could stay the same. Now, the Big Bang Theory did have a flaw, and even George Gamow admitted this. If the Big Bang was very hot, it was an oven. And if it was an oven, it cooked the higher elements. And so all the elements we see around us, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, should have been cooked in the furnace of the Big Bang. But the data didn't seem to fit. Uh, it seemed to explain the abundance of helium quite nicely, but it didn't explain the abundance of the other elements. So how was this flaw eventually resolved? Yes, it, you know, it, it's possible to do quite detailed calculations about the early universe. If you go back to a few minutes after the Big Bang, you know the density of particles, you know the temperature of the Big Bang, and you can work out exactly what cooking should have gone on. And what you can't do is cook the heavy elements, gold, platinum, sodium. They're, they're, they're just too heavy to have been cooked in this short window of what's called nucleosynthesis. And this was an embarrassment for the Big Bang because the Big Bang was supposed to account for everything. Now, ironically, Fred Hoyle, who hated the Big Bang, helped the Big Bang get out of this hole. Well, unfortunately, we have run out of time. Once again, our special guest today was Simon Singh, a commentator for BBC Television, talking about the origin of the universe. But in the last few minutes that we have, let's summarize what we know about the Big Bang. There are basically three proofs of the Big Bang theory, as was mentioned. The first is the Doppler shift, the fact that the stars, the galaxies that surround us are moving away from us, not moving toward us, given the fact that the universe is expanding. The second proof is nucleosynthesis, that is, the fusion that took place at the beginning of time fused hydrogen into helium, so that explains the abundance of helium in the universe, but the higher elements the higher elements were actually not forged by the Big Bang at all. The higher elements were forged in stars. Stars are, in some sense, like stellar factories, ovens that create the higher elements. And the highest elements, the elements beyond iron, for example, were actually forged in the heat of a supernova. And so, believe it or not, the elements of your body were forged in the heat of an exploding star. But the clincher... The clincher that really sealed the fate of the origin of the universe is the cosmic background radiation. In other words, the afterglow, the afterglow of the Big Bang. Now, believe it or not, you can actually pick up remnants of this afterglow of the creation of the universe on your television and on radio. It turns out that the static, the static that you pick up, is partly due to the radiation left over from the Big Bang itself. And by analyzing this radiation, we find that it is so-called black body radiation, obeys a very specific frequency dependence, 
which matches exactly the prediction by George Gamow and others. And so in other words, it was the heat of the original Big Bang itself that created remnants. And these remnants can be picked up in the microwave region by radio telescopes, and in fact, by your television set and radio in the static. So we have not one, not two, but three. Three proofs of the Big Bang and data points. We have scores of data points that point to the Big Bang. And so the microwave background radiation is not just in any old background radiation. It fits precisely the prediction of the Big Bang theory, meaning that at the beginning of time, there was a titanic explosion which set the universe into motion. I'm afraid that's it for exploration. Once again, our special guest today was Simon Singh, commentator for BBC Television. And you've been listening to Exploration with Dr. Michio Kaku. Go to my website to find out more about my work, mkaku.org, M-K-A-K-U.org. I have 5 million fans on Facebook, and I've written five New York Times bestsellers. The latest one is called The God Equation. The Quest for a Theory of Everything. To finally complete Einstein's dream of finding an equation, perhaps no more than one inch long, that will allow us to, quote, read the mind of God. Once again, this is Dr. Michio Kaku for Exploration. Good day. <music>